What happened in Thessalonica? Going verse by verse through 1 Thessalonians, we're in part six. Here's the title of the message, How to Feel Fine at the End of the World. How to Feel Fine at the End of the World. 1 Thessalonians chapter four. We're gonna be reading that in just a moment. So take your Bibles out. Smartphone Bibles, almost as good as paper Bibles. So take out your paper Bible or smartphone Bible. First Thessalonians. And if it takes a while to get the first Thessalonians, don't worry about it. We'll put all the verses on screen here. Two-thirds of the Bible is prophecy. Two-thirds of the Bible is talking about what's going to happen. That's what prophecy is. And much of that prophecy has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ's first coming. Uh, he came, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to the right-hand side of God the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit and the church was born. And here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, worshiping the same Jesus that they were worshiping in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It's a miracle. We are, I don't know if you realize this, but the church is really a miracle. It's a worldwide miracle that exists to this day. It has survived countless eras. It has survived countless antagonism and persecution. It has survived totalitarianism, communism, socialism, capitalism, and it is still going strong 2,000 years later. The church is a miracle. If you're part of the church, you're part of a miracle. Amen. And so the question is, what about the rest of that prophecy that hasn't come true yet? Two-thirds of the Bible is about prophecy. More prophecy in the Bible is dedicated to Jesus' second coming than his first coming. Think about that. There's more material in this book about what we have yet to see happen than what we have already seen happen. There is no question the writers of the New Testament wanted us prepared, wanted us expectant that Jesus Christ, who ascended to the right-hand side of God the Father, will return for one final moment in history. We'll bring to a culmination what we see right now. We'll inaugurate the visible and real reality of the kingdom of God. We'll bring us to his presence and perfect our bodies and resurrect our lives and make us immortal. We have got a glorious future ahead of us. And this is what we're talking about today. Back in 1987, there was a band called R.E.M. How many remember some R.E.M.? How many lost some religion on R.E.M.? <laughs> what a great band. Um, old school rock and roll, what happened to it? Oh, I don't know, it was good though. They wrote a song called, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And the last few words, and I feel fun, yeah. Gen Xer is with me on that one, amen. Uh, introduce your kids to it after service. Do them a favor, okay? But do we feel fine as we see the signs of the end of the world? All evidence to the contrary. All evidence to the contrary. It's just one crazy thing after another. COVID-19, Putin invades Ukraine, banks collapsing as we speak, freedom of speech under attack, Pastors were arrested for having church. The rule of law has been abandoned. Police are vilified. Criminals justified. Riots in our streets. 
daily mass shootings, homeless encampments and taking, uh, to taking over every urban area of our country. Uh, San Francisco had to call in the National Guard this past week because the problem with homelessness has overrun their society. The federal government declared a state of emergency at our southern border as 10,000 people crossed the border illegally every single day, bringing with them drugs and other kind of societal problems. A Satan conference was held in Boston, Massachusetts last week. Drag queens are honored as guests at the White House, and several states have passed laws to enshrine the right to kill your unborn child right up to the day of birth. And coming soon, AI, artificial intelligence, is gonna become self-aware and create an army of robots and enslave us all, and we'll all be living a James Cameron film together. <laughs> Do you feel fine? That's the question for the world. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking at the statistics and I don't see people feeling fine. 44% of our high school teenagers report being hopeless persistently. 44%. One out of three high school teenagers, the CDC reports, uh, seriously contemplated suicide over the last year. One in six Americans are currently taking antidepressants. Sesame Street just announced a new um, area of programming dealing with a mental health crisis for three to eight-year-olds. What happened to wisping the clouds away and the sunny day on Sesame Street? The world has gone bananas and people are depressed. It's the end of the world. And we don't feel fine. Our federal government this week, the Surgeon General came out and reported that we have a new epidemic. It's an epidemic of loneliness, something that I've talked about for eight years. For eight years, I've been talking about this problem of loneliness. This is the same federal government that told us to stay apart and save lives for a year and a half. Now they want to pretend that they have the solution. They presented a six-part plan to remove loneliness from our country. Here's the six parts. Notice if anything's missing. Strengthening social infrastructure through parks and libraries. Enacting pro-connection public policies at every level of government. Mobilizing the health sector to address the medical needs that stem from loneliness. Reforming digital environments to critically evaluate relationships with technology. Deepening our knowledge of loneliness through research into the issue and cultivating a culture of connection. Our federal government wants to pretend that the problem it created now has the solution to. And what's missing from their list? God, a faith in your spirit that you believe that no matter how crazy the world gets, you have a personal connection with the one who holds the world in the palm of his hand. And let me tell you something, you might be an unbeliever today, I'm so glad that you're here. And I want to tell you that there's only one person who can give you peace in your heart. There's only one person who can bring you joy to your soul. And it is not the government, and it is not more stuff, and it is not capitalism or socialism. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again for you and can come back for you at any moment to bring you home to God. It's worth getting up in the morning. And here's what I want to tell the church today. We should feel fine at the end of the world. Do you know why? Because we know how it ends. The same Jesus who beat death is coming back to rule and reign on this earth, and we are going to rule and reign with him in perfect harmony and peace. 
We've got nothing to worry about. We've got nothing to stress about. I don't know what you're going through. I'm not diminishing your problems or situations. We're going to struggle. We're going to wrestle. But we know him who holds the future in his hand. So we can feel fine at the end of the world. Now, what do we do at the end of the world as Christians? We argue about it. Now, how many of you have heard the term tribulation? The tribulation. Raise your hand, all locations, even if I'm on the screen. It's okay. All right, so a little bit better than our Saturday night crew. Pray for them. There's like three people who knew that the term. How many of you have ever heard of the millennium? The millennium reign of Christ, 1,000-year reign of Christ. Okay, so here's what we do as Christians. Instead of being happy about the end of the world, we argue about our, our view. So there's a bunch of views. There's pre-tribulation rapture premillennialism, which means that Jesus is going to secretly snatch the church out of the world, and then a seven-year period, the tribulation, of absolute terror is going to befall humanity, and then at the end of that, Jesus is going to come back with the church and rule and reign for a 1,000 years and inaugurate the millennium. That's a pre-trib, premillennial view. And um, some people hold that view. Then there's the post-tribulation. That is, after the seven-year period, God is going to come back in Jesus Christ and resurrect his church and bring them to heaven and then inaugurate the millennium, and then they will reign for a thousand years at the end of the seven-year trouble that's going to come upon the world. That's the post-millennium, uh, post-tribulation, premillennial view. And then there is the mid-trib view. These are for the people who can't make up their minds. Somewhere in the middle of the tribulations of three and a half years, Jesus is going to come back and bring his church out of the, out of the world, and then a three and a half year period of absolute des des desecration, des destruction will fall upon the world, and then the millennium will happen. And then there's some people who believe in a post-tribulation amillennialism, which means that at the end of the seven-year period, uh, Jesus will return, and there is no millennium because we are currently in a spiritual millennium, and Jesus is ruling and reigning through the church right now. And that's just a fraction of the views and a fraction of the arguments that people can make. And here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to set the tone today because this passage that we're talking about deals heavily with all that content. But I want to set a ground rule. Here's the ground rule, and I want you to write it down. The end of the world shows us. The end of the world should encourage our faith, not engage us in endless debates. The end of the world should encourage our faith, not engage us in endless debates. So I will be clear today, I'm going to play my hand. You're going to find out my view of the end of the world. Uh, 2018 on my YouTube channel, Tim Hatch Live, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live, I did a Revelation series. We went verse by verse through the Revelation, book of Revelation. Uh, did you know, by the way, that the book of Revelation is the least desired to be preached book of the Bible in pastoral work? In, uh, pastors want to avoid that book like the plague, probably because of all the plagues in the book. And did you know that the, the most desired to be taught in the pews is the book of Revelation? So we have an impasse. So I said, I'm going to make the first move. And I taught that book verse by verse. And the Lord, through that and through some things that happened before and since, changed my view. I am one of the first people, I'm one of, not the first, I'm one of the few pastors who will willingly admit that over the course of my preaching, I actually switched views. I was raised pre-trib, pre-millennial. Dispensational. Some of you might not know what that means. It doesn't matter. Um, that's what my view was being raised. And then I studied the Bible, and I did my own research, and I didn't listen. Listen to this very carefully. I didn't listen to what other people told me. I did my own research, and I have switched. And so now, for those of you that this means something, here's who I am. I am post-tribulation amillennial. Again, that probably means nothing to you. And what all that means really is that we got a seven-year period of hell to go through as the church before Jesus comes back. 
That is how I have arrived. That's where I have arrived. So I used to be pre-trib and now I'm post-trib. Now, for those of you who are pre-trib amongst us, feel no pain because there are some preachers and some heroes of mine, namely Max Lucado, who, wrote, who writes great uh, Christian books. He's actually come the opposite way as me. He used to be post-trib post amillennial, and now he is where I was. We literally crossed each other on the theological street. So I was pre-trib, pre-millennial, now I'm post-trib, I'm millennial. All I know is that I'm trans-trib. Oh it feels really empowering to come out to you right now and just acknowledge that. Okay, so, <laughs> now you don't have to clap for that. <laughs> now, what you have to understand, again, is that the Bible is filled with prophecy about this end times period. Again, not to make us argue, but to get us ready. Here's another pastoral concern for you about being post-trib, is that I, I think that if I prepared you for pre-trib and I was wrong, that'd be bad for you. Like if I told you, don't worry about it. You know that hell that's coming out of the world? You're not even going to go through it. Don't worry about it. You are good. Just keep coming to church and paying your tithes. And then seven years, and you're like, hey, pastor, what's up? <laughs> no, I'd rather, you I'd rather you be prepared for the tribulation. And to be honest, I'd really like it if you pre-tribbers were right. We'd be strong and ready to suffer and then not suffer. Amen? We'd be like those bodybuilders who make all those muscles pop out of their body for no apparent reason other than to oil them up and show them off. Okay, so, so that's my pastoral concern here. So with all that being said, let's take a look at how 1 Thessalonians addresses this. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says these, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet sound of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. Ooh, that sounds good. Therefore encourage each other with these words. Verse five, uh, chapter five, sorry. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labors come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Notice that Paul tells Christians that they are not going to be surprised by the day of the Lord. Why would he need to tell Christians that they wouldn't be surprised by the day of the Lord if they were already going to be in heaven and the day of the Lord would happen seven years after they were there? So anyway, moving on, verse 5. You are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us keep sober, having the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. And that is true. And you can have a post-millennial, post-tribulation view and, and still know that God will not pour out his wrath on you. 
Just letting you know. For God has not just destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The end of the world should encourage our faith, not engage us in endless debates. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, speak to your people. Speak through me. May my words be guarded by the Holy Spirit and the will of Jesus. Help our ears to be open and our hearts to be receptive and our minds to be renewed through the preaching and teaching of your word and help us to see Jesus. In his holy name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. How to feel fine at the end of the world. Four points and then we're done, but the fourth point has three points, so that's a quick way of me getting seven points into your spirit. (laughs) Point number one. We can feel fine at the end of the world because we have hope in the midst of grief. We will grieve. Church, we will grieve. The, the Christian faith is not an excuse to just act flippant about tragedy and trouble and problems and death and loss. Why, why do we grieve? We grieve because we lose things. We lose a loved one. We lose a job. We lose friends. We lose a relationship. I don't know. Maybe, uh, heaven forbid, some of you have lost a child. But we grieve because of loss. Loss produces grief. And loss is a universal experience. Everyone experiences loss. And there's no avoiding loss because this world is broken by sin. So you're going to lose something. You're going to grieve, therefore. The good news of the gospel is we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. There is a Christian grief and then there is a worldly grief. Which kind of grief do you have? I have been to the hospital room as Christians have passed from this life to the next. And I've also been to the hospital room where people have passed from this life to the next who are not Christians. And I cannot tell you the tangible, atmospheric difference between the two. There is a great difference in having hope in the next life and no view or hope or belief in the next life. Huge difference. And the Thessalonians were suffering. They were suffering. Um, Several times through the first four chapters of Thessalonians, Paul mentions their afflictions, their sufferings, their trials. We're going to suffer if we are people, and we are definitely going to suffer if we are Christian people. We cannot avoid it. But we have hope in the midst of it. And that's what Paul is writing here to the Thessalonians. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed. Notice the word uninformed. If you got your paper notes out, just underline uninformed. Uninformed means that you don't know. You're uninformed. He says, so he's like, we we don't want you living uninformed about death and loss. Because this death and loss thing for Christians, listen, is not the end. So, That means that you don't have to grieve like the people that don't believe that. Here's what he's really saying. He's saying, if you don't get this, if you don't know this, if you don't remind yourself regularly that there is a glorious future and a blessed hope for you, you will live just like the world. How many Christians are there right now? And I'm talking about church-going Christians, church-going people. You believe it just like the world. You fall apart just like the world. You, you throw up your hands just like the world. No. No, you got to remind yourself. you got to come back to church and get reminded that Jesus Christ is coming again. Yes. 
I got a family in heaven waiting for me. I got a grandfather who pastored this church up in Norwood for 30 years. He's waiting for me. I got a great grandmother there. She's there too. I got people who I've seen in this church pass from this life to the next. And I can't wait to see them again. It's not the end. Jesus Christ is alive and those who die in him are alive as well. That's my hope. I can grieve, but I can grieve with hope. And he says, this is why, four sins, verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died, just circle died, because there's a very key little linguistic tool that Paul utilizes in verse 14 that I want to explain to you. He says, we believe that Jesus died, therefore, because he died and rose again, therefore God will with Jesus bring those who have fallen asleep, just underline asleep, because those two terms are two terms for death, but they're different terms, Right? Why would Paul say about Jesus he died, and why would Paul say about those who died in Jesus that they're just asleep? This is a a little trick, a little theological trick to pack the gospel into every verse. When Jesus died, he died twice. Some of you need to understand this. When Jesus died, he died twice. And listen to me, every human being on the planet, you got a choice about death and life. You can be born twice or once. You can die twice or once. And depending on how many times you're born, that determines how many times you die. Let me explain. You're born physically, but you're born physically as a sinner. You're naughty. You're mean. You're nasty. You're selfish. Your mom never has to tell you to hit your sister. That comes natural. (laughs) That means you're born a sinner. So you need to be born what? Again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you're born twice, you're born physically and born spiritually. And this is the good news. Are you ready for this? You only die once. You only die physically. Maybe if Jesus tarries, if Jesus waits for you to die physically. Okay, so this is, this is how I want to go, by the way. I don't want to die at all. I'd rather just Jesus come in my lifetime. Anybody with me on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So born twice, die once. Maybe. Born once, die twice. You die physically, and then you die spiritually. And spiritual death is this. It is separation from God forever. Every good thing that you experience on this earth is because of God. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Your goodness, your, the clothing on your back, the air in your lungs, the moderate good looks that you're sporting out here today at all of our location, that's from God. It's amazing how quick we will blame God for the small bad things that happen and forget to thank God for the abounding good things that happen. So here's the deal. Separation from God, that's spiritual death. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, 28. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body and cannot kill the soul. He's talking about two deaths. Don't fear people. Don't fear, the, don't fear Washington, D.C. Don't fear uh, Ukraine. Don't fear Putin. Don't fear wars and rumors. No, they can only kill this. This this is not your whole life. He says, here's what you're going to fear. You're going to fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And fear means that you have reverent respect for God. So here's what he's talking about. Here's what Paul is talking about back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. He says, Jesus died twice. On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that meant that he was spiritually dead in that moment. He was separated from God because he bore on his body all of our sins. God placed on Jesus the sins of the world. 
Jesus was separated from the Father in that instant and bore an eternal punishment for us in that instant. Why is it eternal when it was only a couple of moments? Because Jesus is an eternal being. And he bore our sins and died spiritually, and then he died physically. He died twice so that you and I, if we believe in him, only have to die once. That's the good news of the gospel. So here's why Paul says, Jesus died, but we go to sleep. Because if we, go to, if we die in Jesus, it's just a nap. Amen, somebody. That's the truth, and everybody gotta know this. You gotta know this, because this is what gives you hope. But you're not going to stay in the ground. You're not gonna stay six feet under. Jesus Christ is gonna come and wake you up with the trumpet sound of God. And that is our hope. Die once, uh, born twice, die once. Number two, we feel fine at the end of the world because we are covered in the midst of calamity. God will cover you through the tribulations of this life and then also through the great tribulation as I believe at the end of the age. Now, let's take a look at how Paul unpacks this and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna use some supportive verses today and I'm gonna take some time to teach you this because I want you prepared. Here's what he says in Thessalonians again, verse 15, we declare to you by word from the Lord, that means take this seriously, this is not a joke, this is straight from Jesus. He says that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fought the dead in Christ, the people who have died once. He says the Lord will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the, uh, with the trumpet of God. Now remember that phrase, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Remember that phrase, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, by the way, uh, the word in the Latin translation of this verse is rapturo, caught up. Rapturo in Latin, that is the, the word from which we get the theological understanding of rapture. That's where it comes from, right here. Caught up, Latin translation, rapturo, rapture. And um, it's a violent word, by the way. The original Greek word is harpazo. One thing about Greek words, because the Bible was, the New Testament was written in Greek, not English, and not Latin, is that sometimes the words sound like what they are. Onomatopoeic is the phrase. It sounds like what it is. And so, harpazo, harpazo, it's a snatching away. It's got a violence to it. It's not God just saying, okay, come on up. It's snap. And that's exactly how God is going to do it with us at the end of the age. He is going to snatch us out. In fact, I hesitate to go here, but the word rapturo from Latin is also the word from which we get rape. It's a violence in which someone is taken away quickly. Now, let me just ask you, if we're all at peace before the tribulation, why would God need to violently snatch us out? Are you hearing this? It's a violent, fast, snatching away. That's, I just want to make sure you're understanding that. And then we're caught up in the air to meet the Lord and all those who are dead in Christ, and we'll always be with the Lord. And I believe that while we're in the air, Second Peter talks about this, the earth will burn away. And every person who is left will burn the fiery judgment of God. That's in Second Peter. That's why we have to be snatched out of the way for that to happen. And then Jesus comes back and inaugurates the new, the, new, the, the new heavens and the new earth. 
Okay. So, are we clear on the order? Dead in Christ, uh, trumpet of God, archangel sound, Jesus ascends, dead in Christ, we're next. By the way, why do the dead in Christ get first dibs on meeting the Lord? Because they need a six foot head start, that's why. <laughs> Just think about that, that'll come to you later, okay? Trumpet of God, trumpet of God. Rapture, instantaneous transformation. Good news, if you hate your body, that's not the one you're getting in the next life. You're getting an immortal body. You're getting a fit body. I believe a strong body. I believe it'll be around 33 years of age because it'll be like his body. That's, when Jesus, that's how old Jesus was when he um, re was raised to life. And how many know that it, it pretty much is all downhill after 33? How many know about that? <laughs> you wake up with a new pain and a new ache every single day of your life after age 33. So live it up, 20-year-olds. Okay, anyway. <laughs> new bodies. How does Paul describe this in 1 Corinthians 15, 51? Same, same event, the rapture. Same, same details, and notice how he says it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Same wording. We're not all going to die. That means some of us will not be dead when Jesus comes back. We shall all be changed. That's the transformation in a new body. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Some people think that means blink. No, that's the time it takes for the eye to register light hitting its um, hitting the pupil. That's how fast, like that. But faster than that. That's actually tremendously slow compared to how fast it's going to happen to us. In the twinkling of an eye, next four words, everybody. At the last trumpet. At the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. The what trumpet? Last. Okay, good. I, you got it. Revelation chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 describe the seven trumpet judgments of God. Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11. I want to un unpack those details for you. We will not read it all. We will only read about the last trumpet. See if this sounds like tribulation to you. The first trumpet introduces fire and hail upon the world. The second trumpet sounded, says a third of the seas become blood because of a volcanic eruption. That's how I interpret the text. You can read it for yourself later. The third trumpet looks like a meteor crashing into the earth. The fourth trumpet looks like apocalyptic ash in the atmosphere as the sun and moon are darkened. The fifth trumpet looks like an infestation from underground creatures and insects that will populate the earth. Makes perfect sense if you watch the end times movies I'm watching. Sounds like a script from Hollywood. Where do they get the idea? God already wrote it. They're just ripping them off. The sixth trumpet, angels are released to bring death to a third of the earth. That's the sixth trumpet. So just in case you're missing it, third of the first trumpet, fire and hail. Second trumpet, volcanic eruption. Third trumpet, meteor, apocalyptic ash. Number four, uh, infestation from the ground. Fifth, sixth is the angels bringing death to a third of the earth. Seventh trumpet, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Look what it says. It says, then the seventh trumpet. Now, if you got seven trumpets, what else could you call the seventh trumpet? The last trumpet. Are you getting this? We're here. If we are raised, according to 1 Corinthians 15, with the dead in Christ at the last trumpet, 
We experience all that stuff. We're going to be here. And then there were loud voices in heaven, and the kingdom, it says this, they said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is our hope. Now, some of you are like, how is that hopeful? <laughs> you telling me I'm going to be around for volcanic ash and insects? And to our Florida location, which deals with insects on a regular basis, I'm sorry. But pretty soon you won't be alone. You're like, I don't, that doesn't bring much hope. Okay, what does Paul say in verse 18? Let's look at it again in 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How, what do you mean encourage? The word encourage is very, very misunderstood. We think that means just, hey, you're cool. That's great for you. You're wonderful. No, encourage means to put courage in. Courage is in the word. You're going to need courage to go through the rest of the age. So encourage each other. Strengthen it. That's what I'm trying to do with you right now. Strengthen your faith to believe that though you might look at your world and read the news and see what CNN and Fox News are doing and all the heads of state are doing, it seems like the world is literally insane. Every day you wake up and say, what chapter of Revelation are we doing this morning? And I got news for you. All that stuff was already pre-programmed according to the word of God. And he's got his hand on a whole event. And you are in the palm of his hand. And you've got nothing to worry about because he will give you strength to endure right to the end. Courage. You need courage, I need courage. Some of you are like, I still feel a little bit worried about all this. I'm going to give you two practical reasons why you have nothing to worry about. Number one, you might die. That's better. Paul says in, first, uh, in Philippians chapter 1, he says, I'm kind of torn. I'm honestly I'm kind of torn. I kind of want to still work with the church, but I'd rather depart and die and be with Christ. That's better by far. I wonder how many Christians, that's not how you feel. You're so tied to this earth, you forgot about the one yet to come. Some of you single people, please don't let it happen before I get married. Please, please don't let it happen before I get married. Please, just talk to some married people. Just talk to some married people. They're okay with that. Probably last night they were like, I wish Jesus would come right now. I'm so sick of you. <laughs> so you might die. You might be eating your Captain Crunch in the morning. <laughs> Suddenly you hear a trumpet. <laughs> it's the third trumpet. And you hear, shh. And the meteor is coming for your house. <laughs> Good news. You won't feel a thing. <laughs> and the next thing you'll experience is the hug of Jesus around your own. That's how I'd like to go. Amen, somebody. <laughs> save, that all, save that volcanic ash for people who don't want to get a tan. Amen. Amen. Okay. That's the first practical reason. The second practical reason that you don't have anything to worry about is because God has a way of sparing his people through worldly tribulation. Just read the record of Scripture. Have you heard of Noah? Didn't Noah go through the flood safely? It was, God killed everybody. Through a worldwide flood, there's Noah out on the deck fishing. <laughs> having the time of his life. Have you heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? 
There was a fourth man in the fire. They came out. The Bible says that the guys that threw them in were burned up. It was so hot. They came out. They didn't even smell like smoke. God protected them through the judgment. A couple chapters later, there's a guy named Daniel. They throw him into the lion's den. The angel comes down and shuts the lion's mouth. David has the zoo experience of a lifetime <laughs> hanging with lions in the middle of a den. Because historically, God has been able to shield his people. Most notably, in the plagues of Egypt, the Bible says the people of Israel, a darkness came over the land, insects infested the land, frogs infested the land, um, and the death of the firstborn son also swept across the land, and every single plague did not touch God's people. My point is, you are covered in calamity. And if you are put to death, you got to be with Jesus. Number three, we are alert in the midst of moral deterioration. This is why we can feel good at the end of the world. Because you look at your word and you say, whoa, man, what, what is next? Why are people going crazy? Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, woe to them that call evil good and good evil. They flip the script on what's righteous and what's not. That's us right now. That's us right now. There's a whole group of people, we call them public university professors, who think that I am evil. They think I'm evil for what I'm saying and what I believe. I am the problem with America. You're the problem with America. And this is because the scriptures told us that morality would deteriorate the closer we get to Jesus. So Paul says it like this to the Thessalonians in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, concerning the times and the seasons, you don't have anybody, you don't need anybody to write to you, for you yourselves are fully aware. Now notice the little kind of like opposing elements. You are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that's the judgment day, Amos chapter 5, Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about the day of the Lord. They say it's a day of darkness and deep gloom. You are aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, when I was growing up in youth group, the thief in the night was the title of a movie that scared the living stuff out of you. Anybody remember that? It was a poorly produced 1970s film, bad acting, bad cinematography, and just come to Jesus or you are really gonna suffer. So anyway, that's how I got scared into getting baptized when I was a teenager. Um, Thief in the night, I thought that was a Christian ter term. I thought that was a New Testament term. Guess what? It's an Old Testament term. Thief in the night. There's a little obscure law in Exodus chapter 22, and it says it like this. It says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, if, if you've got a thief coming into your house at night and you kill him, you're innocent. That's what that law means. Then he says in verse 3, this is the law now. But if the sun has risen on him, in other words, if it's daylight, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, he shall be sold for his theft. Now, what the Bible's saying here is if you got a thief coming in at night, you have the right to kill him and be justified killing him because him coming in at night means he wants to kill you. But if he comes in the day, he doesn't want to kill you because he can't sneak up on you. And you're probably not at home because you're out working in your field. 
So he's coming in just to take your stuff from you. If you go and then kill him, you're guilty. And here's the moral principle here. Because his life is more valuable than your stuff. Got it? So thief at night, you ain't all right. Thief at day, everything's okay. All right? And I just made that rhyme up last night when I was preaching to the church. So I think that's pretty talented if you ask me. Anyway, yeah. the point is, that's the law Paul is talking about here. When Jesus comes again, for some people, it'll be like a thief in the night who's coming to kill. Are you hearing this? But for the people who are in the day, everything's going to be okay. He's just coming to take your stuff away. But he's bringing you to himself. Isn't that beautiful? This is what we should expect. And we are not of the night. We are of the day. So what will people be saying? Verse 3, back to 1 Thessalonians. While people are saying there is peace and security. Man, I could talk about this for an hour. But our obsession with safety is also a sign of the time of the age. We are obsessed. This country is obsessed with safety. That was the theme of the COVID pandemic. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay safe. It got so bad. I was just, safe became a four-letter word for me. I used to swear with it. What the safe? I can't stand that idea. Where is this idea that we're supposed to be safe? Where? Do you know why people will be talking about peace and security? Because they won't feel it. They'll know deep down inside. There will be a foreboding. Let me show, let me show you how Jesus talks about it in Luke chapter 21, verse 25. He says, there will be signs in the moon and stars and on the earth the stress of nations. So that's what we've got now. Perplexity because of the roaring of the seas. That's the climate change alarmist right now. And people will be fainting with fear. The Bible, the words there in the Greek translation, fainting with fear, means they'll stop breathing. That's, that's respiratory illness. Then he says this, and with foreboding of what's coming on the world. Do you not feel that right now in the culture? Whether it be climate change alarmists, or the next pandemic person, or the next war, whatever it is, there's always somebody willing to tell you that there's a reason that we got to be safe. We gotta be safe, there's peace, there's security over here, over there, over there. Hide, bunker up, stock up on food supplies. Get yourself an AR-15. Ammo up, because at any moment, the world, it's gonna, ah. Like that's where we are. That's our world right now. That's the craziness of our world. And then this is the foreboding that is on the face of the earth because they can see the signs of the time. Verse three, back to First Thessalonians. Then sudden destruction will come upon them. The foreboding is justified because sudden destruction will come as a pain of labor comes upon a woman. Verse 4, back to the you pronoun. So he's been talking about them, 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 now you. But you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. You're in the night. You're in the day. You're not people of the night. So when we see moral deterioration in our culture, here is what Christians should say. Yep. Jesus told me that was going to happen. So I know it's hard because it affects you personally at your job with the rules that they keep changing and, you know, twisting to get you, you know, I don't know, jailed up socially or whatever it is. And I hear you. I feel you. I feel your pain. And it's tough. 
but you shouldn't be taken aback. You should look at it and say, yes, this is supposed to happen before Jesus comes. Number four, and finally, we are increasingly engaged in actions of faith. Now, this point, number four, is the only one you got to do. This is the only one. Did you notice that? This is the only one that requires something from you. Point number one, we have hope. Our hope comes from Jesus. Point number two, we're covered. Our covering comes from Jesus. Point number three, we are alert. That's because Jesus told us that we would see all these things happen. But point number four is we are increasingly engaged. Increasingly, circle increasingly if you wouldn't mind. Just circle it because I'm asking you a question right now. Are you, as the days are approaching and the world is deteriorating and you see the signs coming, are you getting more engaged in faith or less? Jesus said there's going to be ten virgins. The ten virgins wait for the, that's the symbol of the church. He says five will be ready and five won't be. That means that half of the global church of Jesus will not be ready for his return. They will be caught up in all kinds of other nonsense. Kids, sports, activities on Sunday, all kinds of habits all kinds of things they give all their money to, all their time to. They'll play golf for hours and they won't consider an hour at church worth the time. They'll be involved in all kinds of public ideologies, but they won't be devoted to the King of glory. And now is not the time, ladies and gentlemen, for you to be half-hearted about Jesus Christ. Now is the time to go all in and produce fruit and follow Jesus with all of your heart. Now's the time. I'm just telling you, I know in every location of Water Church, we've got half-hearted saints. You come when you feel like it. You come when nothing else is going on the weekend. I'm so glad you're here so that I could spank you for a moment. <laughs> and tell you, wake up! Do you think it's going to get better? You think it's going to get easier? You think that this world is going to come to its senses? No! There's no way. And for all of those who put your faith in 2024, I got news for you, a new president won't fix it. Because it's not the president, it's a spiritual condition in the heart of man and in this world that is dominated by Satan, the spiritual father of the unbelievers. But you are not those people. You are people who march to the beat of a heavenly drummer. You are people who are armed and dangerous for Jesus. You are people who have the armor of God on your body. You have the word of Christ in your mouth. You have the Holy Spirit inside of your vessel. And you know that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And he's coming back and you're ready for him. You're ready for him. So three things, stay in the light. Stay in the light, letter A. Don't go back into that old way. Don't go back to your old life, it's darkness. When you were in it, you were miserable. Why do you wanna go back to it? He says, since we belong to the day, let's be sober. Don't be getting drunk, don't be getting wild, don't be getting crazy, don't YOLO. It's not YOLO, it's YOLT. You live twice, not once. Don't fall for that mantra of the world. Don't listen to the rock stars that tell you to live it up and do all you want and feel all the joy that you think you should have. Don't listen to that stuff. That's nonsense, that's a lie from the pit of hell. You are people of the day. Let her be, stay strong in the fight. You gotta be strong for this, because it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get darker. And the Bible says you gotta put the breastplate of faith and love on. You gotta put the helmet of the hope of salvation on. You gotta remind yourself daily, you are in a fight for your soul. 
Husbands, you are in a fight for that marriage. Wives, you are in a fight for those children. You are in a fight for your home. You gotta pray over your property. You gotta pray over your job. You gotta pray over your children on a regular basis because this is not to be taken lightly. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's coming to play for real. You gotta play truth in Jesus Christ and you gotta pray strong like now more than ever before. Jesus said in Matthew 24, because of the increase in lawlessness, many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You gotta endure. You gotta endure through this. And you gotta, if you see people falling off the way, if you see people giving up the faith, you should say, yep, Jesus told me that would happen too. And let her see, stay tight in the body of Christ. Stay in the light, stay strong in the fight, and stay tight. This is not a time to get lackadaisical about your relationships with other people in Christ. Your best friends should be Christians. I'll say it again. Your best friends should be Christians. And I'm not talking about half-hearted Christians. I'm talking about serious Christians. I'm talking about people who stay strong in Christ through the ups and downs of life. I'm not saying you don't have to be any friends with any unbelievers. Of course not. That You'd have to leave the world to do that. But your closest friendships should be people who love Jesus and love the church and heart and hunger for His return.